Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Praise God. It's so great to see everyone again. We had so much fun Thursday night, like Scott said. Uh, I, I remember we, we haven't done the parade in a while because the last time we did it, one of the kids got ran over. And uh, so needless to say, we were a little traumatized from, from that experience. But nobody got ran over this year, and we only lost one of our seniors. So, you know, it, it, we uh, lost Becky. She disappeared for about an hour, you know, but we got her back. She's back with us. So, yeah, I would say overall it's a success, and so uh, we're so excited about that. I'm thankful for last week, Scott bringing the message. Wasn't that awesome? For those of you that are here, it's, a, it's amazing to see God work in somebody's life and watch the growth and, and uh, to be able to partner with the calling that he has uh, on Scott, and I'm excited to see where the men's ministry goes. I'm a firm believer that when the men of God raise up to the calling on their life to be the spiritual leaders of their home and in their God's church, there is a special blessing that's poured out on a, the body of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe we have some awesome women. We've got some Deborahs in this place. There's some women of faith that I believe are the sole reason why we are blessed in so many ways uh, at this church. But there is something significant about the men of God finding their place. And so uh, it's exciting that we're in this time where we're beginning to pour into the men and watch the men of God begin to grow and move forward. And I'm excited about what is going to happen. I believe the best is yet to come. And so uh, we're excited about that. For those of you that are new, I'm Pastor Joey, and uh, we're excited that you're here with us. Um, if you were here with us last week uh, or, or this is your first time, we just want you to know we're excited that you're here. We believe everyone matters to God, and so there's no uh, mystery, there's no coincidence you're here. We believe that God brought you here so you can encounter his love and his joy, and so we're thankful that you're with us, that we can be an encouragement to you. And I say it often that we just believe that when you encounter the presence of God, you come the same, but you leave changed. There's something in you that shifts. And so we pray every week, God, may your presence be poured out in this place. Because we don't want to be the same as the way we walked in. We want to be a little different today. And we just believe that together. Amen? Amen. So today we're in week three. This will be the last week in the series, Sink or Swim. It's been, uh, I think, an awesome uh, series that God has been kind of talking to us about when times get tough, when seasons are hard, and uh, what we can do to not just survive it, but thrive in it. And, uh, and I just am excited about what God has for us today, because I think it hits every one of us that we need this message today. In week one, we talked about when I'm treading. You know, the deep in Scripture refers to spiritual darkness. It refers to uh, the place of the dead. They had this belief that deep water symbolized the underworld. And so when the psalmist is saying deep crawls out to deep, he's describing an unrelenting spiritual attack coming his way that he can't seem to escape, and he's calling out to God. And we talked about in those moments when we're in just those dark seasons, how it can be easy just to begin to tread, like we're in the middle of the ocean. The only thing we can think to do to stay afloat is to tread water. And so we start treading in all different ways to manage and control our circumstance so that we keep from drowning, we keep from falling under the, the water. And we discovered that we don't have to tread, but we can float. We can float by surrendering our circumstance to the Lord and just trusting Him in the midst of difficult seasons. In week two, we talked about when we're in the storm, that storms aren't just a difficult season, but they're a targeted attack to take you down. In those storms, it's like there, there's no up or down, left or right. There's confusion. There's chaos. You, you don't know where to go, what to do. And it doesn't matter if you tread or swim because it doesn't work for you. And so the only thing that can uh, come through in that moment is a rescue. We need a rescuer to pull us out of the storm, to guard us in the storm. And we discovered that if we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, that he becomes front and center, the storm fades away into the background. And we're able to not just float, but we're able to rise up above the waves and walk on the water with Jesus. This week, 
we're talking about when it's my responsibility. When the deep, the storm, is my responsibility. You see, we're all bound one day or another in this broken world to go through a difficult season, even to encounter storms. But one thing that keeps us hopeful when we go through difficult times is when we know it's not our fault. I didn't do anything to bring this on me. It's not my fault. This is just happening to me. So I, I know God will get me through it. I know, I know it's not going to last long, but this will pass by. This too shall pass. I just have to hold on. Circumstances just seem to happen to us. But it's hard enough when we're innocent to endure difficult seasons. What do we do when it's our fault? How do we find hope when the season is our fault? When everything's falling apart around us and we are responsible for it. When we seem to be sinking further and further into the deep. Storms are barreling in harder and harder against us. And it's all our fault. How do we find hope when we're responsible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you that your word is instant, in season and out of season. You always have the right word at the right time. And I just pray for every heavy heart today, every person going through a season of confusion, going through that dark, that dark season. God, I even pray for those who are, who are walking in daylight, that everything's going well for them right now. Because one day, they're going to need the truth that we're about to uncover today. One day they're going to need the hope that you have in the scripture so that they can hang on and they can endure and they can rise above uh, these difficulties and struggles in their life. So Holy Spirit, you're the great comforter. We say come and bring your comforting presence. God, fill this place. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being right here among us. Good shepherd, lead us. Great physician, heal us. Great teacher, instruct us. We open our hearts to you, our minds to you, our ears to you, and we thank you, Lord, for what you're about to do. And all God's people said, amen. So there's a well-known story in the Bible. It's one that makes every children's Bible storybook. You know, if you go to the bookstore and you pick up a kid's Bible storybook, you get all the greatest hits in there, right? And it's, you got all the pictures and the colored pages. This one makes every book. It's probably uh, was one of my favorites growing up. It was probably one of your favorites growing up, and it's the story of Jonah. Jonah was famous for one thing, right? Well, what was it? Jonah and the whale, right? We know this, Jonah and the whale. And so uh, we're going to talk about Jonah today. And uh, he was a prophet of God in the nation of Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II, and something significant happens in his life before he finds himself in the belly of a fish. And so we, when we think of Jonah, we instantly think of the fish. But we need to know what led up to that pivotal moment in his life. He doesn't just wake up one day and say, hey, I'd like to go diving in fish guts today. Like, you don't, just don't have that thought. You know, like, yeah, let's go see what the inside of a fish looks like today. And, you know, check that out. It's like... I don't need that anatomy lesson, right? Something happens to lead him into that situation. So we're going to begin reading in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The verses will be on the screen, or you can navigate uh, through the YouVersion, Live, uh, YouVersion Bible app to the live events page. The scriptures are there. If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open to Jonah chapter 1. We'll be in Jonah most of the day today. But in Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Here's how the story begins. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. Somebody say Nineveh. So arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, I love that he's a prophet, and I love that this is a prophetic book, because we just read a self-fulfilled prophecy, right? God says to go to Nineveh, but where does he go? He goes down to Joppa, rents a boat, and goes down into the boat 
And then we know what happens with the fish, right? He goes down into the fish. Jonah was always going down. Like he didn't have a chance. He's going down, right? But here he is, a prophet. Prophets are accustomed to hearing the Lord speak. This was their role. This was their office, their job in the nation of Israel. God would speak to them, and they would go reveal God's word and his will uh, to the people that he was sending them to. Most often, it was the nation of Israel. But sometimes, he would prophesy to nations surrounding Israel. So they were not unknown to God's voice, and they were known to call people to repent or they were known to pronounce the judgment God was about to send on the people because of their great sin. This was normal for a prophet. When God spoke, it was usually words of comfort to a broken people, or it was called to repentance so that there's blessing and not cursing, or it's to say, okay, you've not been listening, here's what's coming for you. This was the role of a prophet. But here, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh to cry out against it, to prophesy against it, because the time had come for them to be held accountable for their sins. But Jonah has a peculiar response. Instead of doing what God said to do, which would have been normal, he goes to the nearest trade port in Joppa, boards a ship, and goes to Tarshish. Now, to understand why this is significant, we need to look at a little geography. We need to, we need to see like what's actually happening here. So we have a map that we're going to put on the screen here. Notice that where A is on the map, it's near Jerusalem, Joppa. Now, to understand about Jerusalem, Jerusalem's on like a mountain. That's why it's called Mount Zion. So anywhere you go from Jerusalem, you go down. Anywhere you're in the nation of Israel, if you want to go to the temple, you always have to go up to the temple from any direction because every direction is down from Jerusalem. So when it says he went down to Joppa, even though it looks like he would go slightly north from Jerusalem. He's actually going down from Jerusalem to the port city of Joppa. But he doesn't just go to Joppa. He boards a ship to go to Tarshish. Now, the exact location of Tarshish is unknown, but from the biblical description, many scholars and archaeologists point to the southern tip of Spain, which would have been the furthest known point in all the world at that time in that region. So Jonah just doesn't go somewhere else. He goes as far as humanly possible. He does a complete 180. God says go this way. He does a 180 and goes completely the other direction. And not just a little ways. His intent was to go as far as humanly possible from God's command. Nineveh was northeast of Jerusalem, not too far away. But Tarshish was on the other side of the world. Now, how often do we do the same thing as Jonah? God says, do this. And we're like, nope, I'm doing this. Even in little ways, right? God says, speak to that person. We're like, nope, not doing that. I'm going over here. Why don't you pay for that person's meal in the line. Huh? Well, I only have enough for me. You know, the God often will speak to us and tell us to do things, and what do we do? We decide to do the opposite. We go the opposite way. But Jonah wasn't just doing the opposite. He was going above and beyond to get as far away from what God was telling him. And this is Jonah in the moment. And there's something specific. There's a specific reason why he was going to Tarshish. It says in verse 3, it says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the what? From the presence of the Lord. Jonah was trying to escape the presence of the Lord. He was running from God. Isn't that peculiar? You're a prophet. You're used to God speaking, God telling you what to do. But then in this case, you're not just ignoring what God's saying. You're running from God. Running from his presence. Now keep in mind, the Israelites knew something about what they call cosmic geography. They knew that God had chosen the land of Israel to be his land for his people. And he turned the other nations over to what we would call false gods or, the, or you know, the fallen realm. They had charge over all the other kingdoms of the world 
the land of Israel, that was God's chosen place for his chosen people. The other, the other nations were ruled by other gods. Israel was ruled by God and God alone. So in Jonah's mind, he's thinking, well, if I leave God's land, which also housed the tabernacle, which housed the Ark of the Covenant, which is where his presence would manifest to communicate with his people, if I leave his city, if I leave his land, then maybe I can leave his presence. But Jonah had another thing coming. The psalmist in Psalm 139, 7 and 8, he says, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. Verse 11 and 12 says, I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. Isn't it human nature, whenever we're going to do something we know we shouldn't do, we try to hide? Why do people only go clubbing at night? Why do people only watch those movies or those videos with the door closed and locked and the lights off and why do we double check, make sure no one's looking around when we're about to sneak into the fridge and eat something we know we probably shouldn't? We're trying to hide. We're trying to hide because we think that if we're covered, we're hidden. It's kind of like playing hide-and-go-seek with little kids. Isn't that fun? You know, you start counting and they run to another room and you kind of know where they go because you hear the sound of their feet, you know, so you go after to follow them and you walk into the room and the light's on and you see their feet hanging out from underneath the bed, but they think because their eyes are closed and they can't see you, that you can't see them. Isn't that what we do? We think, oh, I'm hiding, no one knows what's going on, I must be invisible and no one can see what's happening, but God can see. Nothing escapes the vision of God. God sees everything. Nothing escapes his eyes. He knows what we think even before we think it. God knows what you're going to do even before you do it. You can't hide. It's not like God one day is surprised. Oh, he did that? Oh, she did that? Oh, man, I didn't see that coming. No, God already knew you're going to do it. He already knew. But Jonah thinks he can escape the presence of the Lord. But beloved, God is not just king over Israel. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is lord of heaven and earth. He's lord over all creation. But yet Jonah is on the run. He thinks he's going to get away on the ship. And in the night, a mighty storm begins to blow. And all the sailors on the ship that are that are professional sailors, they're, they're from Tarshish, they are known for uh, being these world-renowned traders. They have these massive ships, these cargo ships. They, they sail across the known world all the time. They begin to freak out because they've not seen anything like this. They start throwing all their stuff overboard, trying to lighten the load of the ship. They begin talking amongst themselves and, and the crew, and they're like, look, I don't know what God you serve, but now's a good time to start calling out to them because this doesn't look good. If this keeps going, that we're, we're, we're sunk. We're, this is going to be a bad day, so start calling out to your God. And so they start calling out to their gods. They start praying and interceding, and that's not working. The storm keeps getting worse and worse. They get more desperate and desperate, and so somebody goes down into the cargo hold where Jonah's just taking a nap or whatever he's doing. And it's like, like, I don't know who you are, but I don't know what God you serve, but you need to start praying. You need to start doing something because if nothing happens, we're sunk. We're all toast. See if your God will answer. And then Jonah has an interesting response to them. Jonah chapter 1 beginning in verse 7. As they're saying one to another, come let us cast lots that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. They, they want to figure out, like, is somebody responsible? Has somebody angered the gods to bring this on us? Because we have never seen a storm like this before. 
We've never seen anything like this. We got to figure out who's responsible for this sin. So they cast lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you from? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And then he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah knew exactly what was going on. He knew God wasn't happy with his actions. But did you catch it? Instead, like, again, he's a prophet. He knows how God works. Instead of repenting for his rebellion, instead of repenting for not doing what God asked him to do or asking God, okay, God, I understand you're mad. The storm's coming at us. We're all in danger. What, what do you want me to do so that this storm can calm down for us? No. What, what does he do? He tells the crew, throw me overboard with the conditions of the storm that would mean certain death throw me overboard there's no chance of survival Jonah literally is instructing these men to help him commit suicide rather than simply asking the Lord what he should do this is insane to think Jonah would rather die than obey the Lord this is extreme and I just liken it to how we act stubborn sometimes. We know God is asking us to do something. We know he's leading us a certain way. But we've got something so made up in our mind, we'll do anything else but that. We'll talk ourselves out of what God is calling us to do. We'll come up with every excuse in the world to stay the course on where we are because we just don't want to change. It doesn't matter how many prophetic words we get, how much counsel from other believers, how many scriptures we read. Our minds are set up, our minds are made up, and no matter what the Lord has said or how he's leading, we just feel like doing what we want to do. And sometimes it takes everything in our lives to fall apart, everything crumbling down before we realize the error of what we're doing. And the tragedy of Jonah here is that Jonah's actions didn't just affect Jonah. His actions threatened everyone around him. It affected everyone. Just as our sin, our mistakes, our, our bad attitudes, our rebellion doesn't just affect us. It affects everyone around us. Especially when we're in a funk where we just don't care about doing what's right. There's been times in my life where I've just been so low, so down, I just, I don't even care right now. You ever feel like that? Ever feel like just, I don't care what's right. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Anybody been like that? Or am I the only sinner in the house? Come on. You know there's times you get so low, you just don't care. But even in those moments, we may not care, but there are still consequences to our actions. And we don't care until we have to deal with the consequences of our actions. Until we wake up to the reality of what we've done and we have to see, oh man, this is what I've done. This is my fault. And, you know, I believe that's why people run from God. They're afraid of the consequences of their decisions. Beloved, God has infinite forgiveness. But that doesn't exempt us from the consequences of our decisions. We fear the outcome of our decisions because for every action, there's an equal and positive reaction. So says Sir Isaac Newton, the law of motion. When you make a decision, you set a chain of events into existence, into motion. When we choose to run from God rather than run to him, the dominoes begin to fall where they fall, and the outcome isn't pretty. That's why God says, don't do that. I want to bless, not curse. But when we go the other way, we open that upon our lives. And I think this is what keeps many of us from admitting we're wrong sometimes in those circumstances. 
We have a hard time admitting where we're wrong or admitting that we did something wrong or that, that we failed because we believe, just like in hiding, we believe if we don't admit it, then maybe we won't have to deal with the consequences. If I just hold my guns and I just believe that I'm right no matter what, even when the evidence is against me, maybe that'll keep me from having to deal with the consequences. But beloved, whether we admit it or not, whether we choose to agree with the truth or not, that doesn't prevent the consequences of our decisions. When we choose pride over humility, it adds fuel to the fire and it hurts the relationships that we have with those involved in the circumstances and in our lives. What I love is that instead of throwing him over instantly, the men gather up and begin praying about what to do because they're like, well, if this God's already angry and this is his man, if we throw him overboard, maybe he's going to be angry with us. And so they're like, God, please don't hold us accountable for this, but we're just doing what he said. And then they throw him over the side of the boat. The wind stops, but not before the giant fish swallows Jonah whole. Now, many of us believe that as we're told in the stories, in the storybooks, that Jonah survived in the belly of the fish for three days and then just gets vomited up on the shore after three days. But, beloved, I don't believe Jonah survives at all. I don't believe that's the case. See, it's interesting that the word for fish, first off, doesn't mean whale, as we think. It actually means fish. So it's a large fish. And I got a picture of the largest fish in the Mediterranean Sea right now it's called a basking shark. So whether this is the fish or not, there might have been something else swimming around 3,000 years ago, but today, this is the largest fish in that sea, and it is large enough, its mouth is large enough to swallow a human whole. But if he does this, it's not going to be very comfortable because of the many thousands of small, jagged teeth that are inlaid inside his jaw. So if he were to swallow Jonah... He wouldn't be happy that he did. And even if he survived the teeth, the lack of oxygen and the stomach acid in his stomach would have meant certain death. So unless God supernaturally kept him alive for those three days, which is possible, God can do anything. Unless he kept him alive, Jonah didn't survive this swallowing. He did. He did permanently. And I think the scripture points to this very fact. First off, Jesus in the New Testament points to Jonah as evidence of his death and resurrection. So if Jonah didn't die, it would make it kind of peculiar that Jesus would point to Jonah as evidence of his death and resurrection. And so that's one indication that Jonah actually died. The second is actually found in Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. So he makes it in there. He's beginning to pray, and this is what he said. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. Now, Sheol is not the name of the fish. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the grave. So he is already in the belly of the grave where he cried. And he says, and you heard my voice. In the Hebrew language, the place of the dead is Sheol. This it weren't a metaphor enough. In verse 3, he says, you cast me into the deep, which we know that they believe the deep represents the, the underworld. From the heart of the seas, again, the underworld. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. The deep, the sea, the flood are all metaphors for the realm of the dead. So Jonah's praying from the belly of the grave. He's praying from this place, declaring that he's in the place of death. Jonah chapter 2, verse 5, he says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. Now, in the ancient Jewish culture, even continuing today, when a Jewish person is buried, they are buried by being wrapped head to toe. So here he's saying, not just that I'm in this place of death, but my body has been wrapped, my head has been wrapped, signifying the burial or funeral custom of the ancient Jews. And so his own testimony is pointing to his actual death. His rebellion against God, his turning away, brought about 
his death. So how does he pray to God from the realm of the dead? First off, God's presence is everywhere, right? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down into the grave, you are there. So even in the grave, God could hear Jonah. But in chapter 2, verse 7, here's what he says. When my life was fainting away, he gets out his prayer moments before his death. You know why this encourages me? Because so many people on their deathbed who have lived a life of rebellion have in their last moments had a change of heart and called out to the Lord. And for many people who are still alive, they wonder, well, did it really matter? Did it really count? We can see in Jonah's life it mattered a whole heck of a lot. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered you. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake, forsake their hope, or the hope of steadfast love. But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah could not have offered an animal sacrifice to cover his sin. So what was his sacrifice? Thanksgiving, praise, worship. In the moment, minutes before his death. He offered God an act of worship, an act of praise as his repentance. And in verse 10, or verse 9, he says, What I vowed I will pay, for salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 10, it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah becomes repentant just before his death. And when God hears him, he lets him sit in there for a couple of days. Just like any good parent sends their kid to the corner or to the room, lets them sit in there a minute to think about what they've done. But then on the third day, just like Christ rising from the dead, God performs a resurrection and the fish spits the man out onto the shore. And where is he? He's on the closest beach to Nineveh. And Jonah decides, okay, I'm going to be obedient to the Lord. I think that was a good choice. Now, it took Jonah dying before he was willing to repent and turn back to the Lord. When I read stuff like this, I just ask questions. I think it's good to ask questions. And the question I have here, it's a prophet of God. What was so bad? What was so wrong with God's request that Jonah would choose death before choosing to be obedient to the Lord? What was so wrong? You see, now Jonah goes to Nineveh. He does what God asks him to do. He begins to pronounce judgment on the people, declares their wickedness, declare the judgment's coming, and then what happens? From the king down to the lowest servant, they begin to repent and fast and turn their ways to the Lord. They begin to give up their idols like revival hits this city. It's this massive thing. In Jonah chapter 3 verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, that he did not do it. God was going to destroy them like he did Sodom. He was going to destroy them like he did nations before. But because they turned from the Lord, he relented and he did not punish them. That's awesome. But in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah is ticked off that God showed this people grace. He was angry, and he prayed to the Lord, Oh, Lord, is it not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. He's getting ready to tell you why he fled. Here's what he says. I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Oh, my goodness, that's a bad thing? we got to amen that one, right? He's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God would rather relent and not punish. How many of us grew up thinking God was going to strike me down any second I made a mistake? That's religious heresy. That's not the God of the Bible. 
God's not waiting for you to screw up so he can punish you. God's saying, no, I want you to turn to me so I can offer you grace, so I can give you mercy, so I can restore your life. Verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? In the New Living Translation in verse 4, it says it like this, and the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Isn't that weird? Isn't that awkward? What made Jonah so upset that he ran from God? The Ninevites, that was the capital city of Assyria. The Assyrians were the sworn enemy of the Israelites. There's a good chance Jonah had some bad encounters with some Assyrians. There's a good chance that Jonah knew some people that had some bad encounters with the Assyrians, that he knew the history of the nation, how they've been at war, and how there's been this wicked and evil portrayed against the nation of Israel by the Assyrians. There's a good chance that Jonah had a bad feeling about this people. So the reason why Jonah ran from God was not because he was upset that God gave him the command. It's because he hated the Ninevites so much so he would rather see them succumb to the judgment of God than to give them a chance to experience salvation and grace. He hated them so much he couldn't even celebrate their salvation as a prophet. This hatred ran so deep, he'd rather seen them burn than be saved. So much hatred that he asked God, just kill me again. Kill me again. He wanted to die when he saw God's mercy and grace come to the people he despised. And he'd rather go back into the pit than see them experience God's grace. See, the thing that created the storm... The thing that sent Jonah into the deep, that caused him to be swallowed by a great fish, was hatred in the heart. Hatred that bloomed out of an undealt with anger and offense. It caused his rebellion. You see, anger is something to be cautious about because the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4... In verse 26, he says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Verse 27, for anger gives what? It gives a foothold to the devil. It's not wrong to be angry. He said, but don't let anger control you. Don't, don't, don't let it operate in your life where it determines what you do, where you go, what you think, how you feel. Why? Because anger is a seed, and if it's not handled properly, if you act upon it, if you speak upon it, if you let anger lead you in any way, you open a door for the devil to come right on in, set up camp in your life, and determine how it's going to run. And the ground that should belong to Jesus and Jesus alone now belongs to the enemy, and he gets to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy capitalizes on your anger. And what's he do? He convinces us that we need to act in our anger in order to protect ourselves, to keep ourselves from getting hurt. And what ends up happening is that he's leading us through our anger. We end up hurting those around us. Even if it's in response to something they've done, we end up hurting ourselves. When we act out of anger, when we let the seed of anger grow in our lives, it produces nothing but destruction. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells us a parable about, tells Peter really a parable about forgiveness. And he uses the illustration of a servant who owed his master a great deal of uh, debt, one beyond anything he could ever pay in his lifetime. And he pleads for mercy, and the master gives him mercy, but then he turns around and claims the debt of everyone that owed him a far less amount of money. Even throws them into prison until they could pay back everything that they owed him. And when the master heard what he was doing to others, even though he had been extended grace, the master gets upset with them and he says, look, I gave you this grace. I forgave you your debt. You couldn't extend that to other people. So I'm going to take the grace back that I gave you. I'm going to throw you into prison to be tormented until you could repay the debt. In other words... And then Jesus, what, what is significant, Jesus then turns to Peter, 
like the leader of the disciples. And he says, and the Father will do the same thing to you if you don't forgive everyone else their trespasses. So what's he saying? He's saying that there's a spiritual reality that as the Father has forgiven you, what right do you think you have to withhold forgiveness from other people? You've experienced such grace. What right do you have to withhold forgiveness? Unforgiveness fuels anger, which opens the door to tormentors to afflict your life and torture your soul. To make you miserable. It colors everything. Even robs you of being able to find joy in joyous occasions because of the torment in your soul. Jesus likens the works of the flesh and the spirit to good and bad fruit. That the source of all fruit that is produced in our lives or source of all fruit that's produced, our plants that produce fruit, is the root system that gives it life. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says, Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness or bitter hatred grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Isn't that what Jesus just said to Peter? If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven either. Look out for each other that you don't miss the grace that God wants to put on your life. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. You won't receive God's grace on your life if you're unwilling to extend the same grace to other people. And what is that grace? It's unmerited favor. You're not entitled to it. It's a free gift. A gift you receive when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you put your faith and trust in him, trusting in Christ the Lord. If you look at Jonah and the Ninevites, the Ninevites did nothing to deserve God's grace and his favor. But when they turned to the Lord, they got to receive it. So what forgiveness is, this grace, this unmerited favor, is that the offending party, the person that hurt you or, or has done something to you, they haven't done anything and can't do anything to earn or deserve your forgiveness. Your forgiveness must be freely given. It's a free gift you extend out of a loving heart. It releases them of owing you any kind of payment to pay you back for anything that they've done. It clears the record, it cancels the debt, and it reestablishes your relationship. Just as God's forgiveness through trusting in Christ cancels the debt of your sin, puts grace on your life, reestablishes relationship together, and restores who you are to the Lord. True forgiveness says, I won't be your judge because only God is your judge. But the problem with bitter roots, and it can also be translated bitter hatred, is when the core of your heart is a seed of bitter hatred that grows into a root system, it affects all areas of your life. And it affects all your relationships, whether you want it to or not. It manifests in damaging behavior, from snide comments to rude speech to bad attitudes even proactive, vindictive behavior to pay back those that have caused you pain. And it comes out even when you don't want it to, and even when you don't realize it's coming out. That's why Paul in Ephesians 4, verse 31, he says, let all bitterness, somebody say bitterness. Let all bitterness, what's it look like? It looks like wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking. Let it be put away from you with all malice. Get rid of all of it. Get rid of all of it. Put away these works of the flesh. And how do you do it? You do it by extending grace through forgiveness. Forgiveness lifts the burden of the offense. Forgiveness closes the door that gives the enemy access to torment your soul. And it closes the door to allowing the enemy to use you to cause pain in other people's lives. You see, the Lord asked Jonah a question in verse 4. Jonah 4, verse 4, says, The Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this? Is it right for you to be angry at me extending grace to your enemy? And the answer is no. It's not right. You should rejoice, O prophet of God. You should rejoice when the offender comes to his senses, when the sinner repents, when the thief quits stealing, when the addict lays down his addiction, when the fornicator 
commits a vow of purity, when the unbeliever comes to faith, you should rejoice because the Lord rejoices over you in your broken journey. So we should rejoice over others who give their hearts and lives to the Lord. You see, if we would check our attitudes, if we would check our hearts, take a hard look of some of the storms that maybe we're struggling through, if we would examine ourselves in pure honesty, in a season where it feels like we're stranded out in the deep, we just might see that the door that opened this hardship to your life might just be a root of bitterness that was open to the enemy to torment you. If Jonah hadn't hated the Ninevites, he would have never seen the storm or the fish. He would have never seen it. There might be some unwillingness in your heart to forgive someone that has caused anger and over time allowed a root of bitterness to grow and now the power of Christ, the power God desires to pour through your life, it's been diminished. The blessings that he wants to pour into your life have been withheld because the anger in your heart is leading you to enable the enemy to stifle the blessings that God wants to give you. See, God wants good and not disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. But when we open the door to the enemy, he stifles those things. He stifles what God wants to pour out and manifest dysfunctional behavior that propagates your struggle, leaving you weak and lost in the deep. But beloved, there is hope for you. If you're struggling through something right now, there's hope. There's so much hope that I see in Jonah's life because though you may be keeping a part of yourself from the Lord, you might be running from him right now because you're trying to keep from getting hurt or even though you know, you're actually acting in a way that's creating more hurt in your life. God knows exactly what you need to get your attention. And God loves you enough to get your attention, to help you see that his way is better. So three things I see that give me hope in this story is, one, God is the one that sent the storm. God intervened in Jonah's rebellion. How did he do it? By sending the storm. Jonah chapter 1 verse 9 says, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this. For he had already told them that he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse and worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to stop the storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. And I know this terrible storm is what? All my fault. The storm is my fault. I brought this on you. God sent the storm because of Jonah's rebellion, Jonah's attitude, Jonah's hatred. But the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that God disciplines us as children. That if he disciplines you, it means he's treating you as his own child. If he doesn't discipline you, it means you're an orphan. But when he disciplines you, it's to treat you as a child. I just think our culture is, is in this place where we need to remember discipline is a good thing. Now, I know we don't go around disciplining other people's kids. You know, you go to Walmart one day, and you see this kid losing his mind in the store, and, and you're just like, what is going on with this picture? And Mom or dad's there is like, now, Johnny, I told you to stop. I told you, please stop. Stop, stop, please stop. One, two, nine, ten. I, I told you to stop. Please, come on, please, please. Forty, fifty, sixty. And you're just like, excuse me, let me help you out here. You're welcome. You're welcome. Problem solved. Kid can't see, kid can't breathe, you don't got no worry about crying in the store. You know, just a little, psh, fix a lot of things. You know, I used to remember getting told, if you don't stop, you're not going to be able to sit down for a week. There are too many kids sitting down on their video games. Some kids need to be up for a week. 
You know, but we don't go around disciplining other people's kids. Why? They belong to someone else. But you better believe we discipline our own kids. Why? Because we want them to grow up and being successful and productive members of society. So we discipline our own kids. Beloved, if you belong to God, he's going to discipline you. When you're out of sorts, when you're out of line, he's going to discipline you. But God's discipline is not meant for our harm. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says, No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be, somebody say will be. There will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained. There is a goal of God's discipline. It's not for harm. It's for good. It's not for disaster. It's for hope. It's for change. It's for righteous fruit to fill and flood your life. He disciplines you because he loves you. He does it for the harvest he knows he can produce in your life. When you are in step with God, God can build a wall of protection around you from spiritual attack. God can lead you on the right path so you don't fall prey to the enemy's schemes. He can guard you so he can't steal, kill, and destroy. The Bible says what God closes, no one can open. And what God opens, no one can shut. When God shuts the door to the enemy in your life, it's shut. It's closed. The enemy can't break in and do a snatch and grab because God is guarding the door. God sent the storm. Number two, he already has the mechanism of your redemption prepared. He already has the mechanism of your redemption prepared. I love this. Jonah 1.17 says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And he was in the belly of that fish three days and night. God had prepared it. So I don't know if he created it at the beginning of time and said, You're one purpose from creation is to swallow this rebellious son of mine and take him back home. Or if God just chose the nearest basking shark floating around in that moment or whatever fish it was to swallow Jonah. I don't know what happened, but I know that God prepared it. That means he appointed it, he anointed it, he set it up. If God hadn't sent the fish, he would have drowned and he would have become fish food from other entities in the ocean, ripped to shreds. But God had a fish swallow him, contain him, take him back to where he should have been. So at the right time, even though John, Jonah's body is taking a fish Uber all the way back to Nineveh, at the right time, God would put him back on the road that would lead to righteousness and salvation and life. In that moment, he went from death to life. God used the fish to bring Jonah back. And God has already prepared the mechanism to get you off the road you're walking that's opening you up to destruction and rebellion to take you back on a journey to where you were always supposed to be, to fulfill your purpose and to glorify him. God sent the storm. God prepared the mechanism for your redemption. Number three, those who are hurt by you can also be blessed by you. Those who are hurt by you, even in the storm, can be blessed by you. You know, one of the greatest quenchers of joy in God's presence in your life is the shame we experience when we come to our senses. When you have that epiphany moment, you wake up to what you're doing, instantly you're covered in guilt and shame. And many of us wear that every day. We know we've been forgiven. We know we've been cleansed. We know we're not what we once were, but we can't shake the shame, especially when we have to look at those we hurt every day and are reminded every day of what you did. This is a reality. Shame is an unwanted house guest keeping you from feeling free. But you know, even though God had redemption for Nineveh in mind, they weren't the only ones that were saved that day. In Jonah 1, 15 and 16, it says, the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea. The storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power. And they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve the Lord. 
God used Jonah's rebellion, not just to save Nineveh, but to raise up witnesses for Tarshish. These men, this nation that would have never had a witness, that would have never known about God's grace, his mercy, and his power, if they had not witnessed what went on in Jonah's life, they would have not been saved themselves and taken that blessing back to their nation. So think about it. If Jonah had just gone to Nineveh, Tarshish would not have its witness. God was able to use even his rebellion. Does that mean we should just live how we want and just let God sort it out? No, we don't test the Lord. We're not going to just say, well, we can do whatever we want. God's grace has got it. No, we don't live that way. But what it does mean is that God does not waste a moment of pain in your life to use it for his glory. He will never waste a moment in your life to reveal his goodness through your life and your testimony. Romans 8, 28, such a powerful and profound truth. Chapter 8 begins with, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means the shame that you carry is not yours to carry. There's no condemnation. It's been put on Christ. You've been set free. The record of wrong against you is wiped clean. You can put it down and you can pick up God's freedom and God's grace. And Romans 8.28 is this verse of hope and encouragement as it says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for good. God works everything together for good, and we know that he does. Why? Because we've seen it. We've, we've seen it displayed. We've read about it. We see it in Jonah's life. We see it in our everyday lives, that no matter how many times we fail, we can get up again and keep going because God uses all things. Somebody say all things. All things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And if you have a relationship with Jesus, you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, you are called, you are chosen, you are appointed for this day and time, you have a mission and a ministry, you've got God's hand and fingerprint on your life, his name's written on your heart, he has something for you to do, something for you to accomplish, something the enemy wants to strip away and slow down, he wants to cover you in shame so you won't get up the next day and go after it, and God says, look, it doesn't matter what you've done or what happens your way, what comes your way, what mistakes you've made. I'm going to take all of that. I'm going to work it together, and you're going to see so much good poured out of your life. There's no sin too great, no mistake too messy, no season too long, no relationship too unholy, no life too broken, that in the moment of surrender, the moment you turn back to the Lord and say, God, not my will, but yours be done. I've made a mess of my life, God. I'm in this storm. I'm being rocked by the seas, but God, on my hands and knees, I say, God, I'm yours. Take me. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll go where you want me to go. God is going to work his power in your life. And you're going to see his good. I think some of you today, you've received the forgiveness of the Lord. But you struggle with forgiving others. And there's an open door in your life. And maybe you've gone through that process where you have offered forgiveness but you still struggle with the most difficult person to forgive, and that's yourself. The most difficult person to forgive when you've made a mistake, when you've done something wrong, when you've hurt other people, is to forgive yourself. Beloved, if you're lost out in the deep and you're caught in a storm, you're swallowed by the circumstances beyond your control, there is hope that you can close the door to the enemy and open the door to the power of the Lord by turning him today, asking his forgiveness for the things you've done, forgiving the people in your life that have hurt you, and allowing his grace to cover you as you forgive yourself and receive his goodness in your life. Isaiah 43 is a promise of the Lord. He says, when you go through deep waters, I'll be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your 
Savior. He has forgiven you so that you can forgive your other, other people and have the power to forgive yourself. Let's bow for prayer. Here shortly before we invite the prophetic team to come forward and minister to us today. If you're struggling, if you've made some mistakes, and you want to get your heart right with God, just right here in the moment, right where you are, ask the Lord to forgive you. He's promised to be faithful, to forgive you of all your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Just ask him. And know by the word of God, he's forgiven you. It's done. The record's gone. He's not going to bring it up again. He's not going to remind you of the things you've done. Why? Because he's good. He keeps no record of wrongs. Love bears all things, hopes all things. It's not puffed up or proud or rude. He keeps no record of being wronged. So when you confess it, it's gone. If you've been wounded, or maybe you're in a position of continual wounded, somebody in your life is hurting you every day, to keep the door closed to the enemy, you need to live a life of forgiveness right where you are. Tell the Lord, God, to the best of my ability, I forgive. And say their name. Say it out loud. There's power in the life. There's power in the tongue. Declare it. God, I receive your forgiveness. And now I extend forgiveness to this person. What did the Lord pray? He said, forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. God wants good for you. Let him go. So the power of that wound, that transgression can come off of your life. Pray and let God set you free. And then number three, forgive yourself. If you're struggling with past mistakes or maybe something you just keep running into that you can't seem to get over, God has grace for you. He's not taking you by surprise. You don't do anything that catches him off guard. He foresaw your struggle at the beginning of time, and he sent Jesus at the end of time to offer his life and his blood on your account. Therefore, when you are in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things are past. All things are new. When he looks at you, he doesn't see your mistake, your failure, or your struggle. He sees the glory of his son. And as he has forgiven you, you can forgive yourself. Something I'm learning every day to break away from shame is to say, God, I forgive myself. God, I forgive myself again. I'm not going to carry that. I'm not going to wear that because you took it. So God, I'm going to forgive myself. Receive God's forgiveness. Forgive others and forgive yourself. And close the door to the enemy. And watch God calm the storm as he prepares and leads you into what he has prepared for your redemption. As Christians, we are people of forgiveness. Forgiving others as God through Christ has forgiven us. To keep the storms from blowing. Even if it's our fault, we can have hope that we turn to the Lord. We walk in forgiveness and in repentance. That this storm was still. And he'll lead us out of it. Put our feet on dry ground, and we'll see his glory through our testimony. He's so good. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the encouragement. I thank you for Jonah and his life. I thank you, God, that you recorded this for us, that we can look back and see that even if it's our fault, even if it's been our rebellion, even if it's been our mistake, if it's been our bad attitude, it's been our unforgiveness, that all these things happen, that we live this dysfunctional life, God, that there is a way out. It's not running from you. It's running to you. Running into your arms. Because it's in your arms our soul finds rest. It's in the shadow of your wings that we can find refuge while the storm of destruction passes us on by. God, I pray for the heavy heart. I pray for those struggling with 
with wounds. I pray right now the healing power of Christ, the blood of Jesus would so saturate their heart and cleanse them, God. You lift their heavy burden. I pray for those struggling with guilt and shame, God, that you would release your power as they forgive themselves. They declare those words, God, that you would come and you would touch them and you'd lift their heavy burden. You'd turn that spirit of heaviness into a garment of praise. God, you are the redeemer. And we just praise you for your redeeming power. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite the prophetic team forward for the next few moments as Tony plays. They're going to minister to us. If you need prayer, if you would like prayer and you want to come forward, we'll have a few of our prayer team members down here. But for the next few moments, we're just going to ask the Lord, what are you saying? What are you speaking? Who do you want to encourage today? And they're going to minister. Thank you.